This is your invitation to the intersection of versatility and design. The kind of experience you can only find in a Lexus SUV. A feeling this empowering is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the versatility of the complete line of Lexus SUVs and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I'm Brandon Thurston, broadcasting live and on demand from Buffalo, New York, where today is Sunday, November the 5th, 2023. And I'm joined today not by Chris Gullo. He's off somewhere in the continental United States on, on a roving corresponding mission, but I am joined today by Jesse Collingslow. Hello, Brandon. Hello. Um, last, Hello to all our last listeners night, as well. Yeah, do we have uh, more than usual? This is a free episode, by the way, for everyone this week. WrestleNomics Radio is free once a month, the first Sunday of the month. Today is the first Sunday of the month, so this is free for everybody. Normally, this is just for subscribers. Uh, there will be plugs later. Don't worry. There will be a huge – oh, no, I'm sorry. There will be an important – no, no, wait. There will be an unimportant announcement later. Uh, we're not going to reveal that at the top, though. Speculate away. Speculate in the chat what you think the unimportant announcement will be. Um we promise that you might be interested in it, and we'll re- we might reveal that later in the crossover segment, uh, the quarter hour in the middle of the show. Um, WWE had a premium live event yesterday. Um, I think it was called WWE Blood Money 10, something like that. Um, uh, it, did, did you watch it? Uh, I did not uh, make the time to, to, to watch the Saudi Arabia show. Uh, okay, I will, I will. I will. I will delete our uh, our slides where I was going to fill in your star ratings. Then, okay. Uh, we, we did have a conversation on Wednesday with Kareem Zidane, who is uh, who does a a Substack and has written a number of articles for outlets like the New York Times and Guardian, uh, talking about Saudi Arabia's rise in the combat sports world, um, with the Tyson Fury Francis Ngannou fight that happened recently, as well as signing a new deal with UFC to bring events to that country, and WWE's event, obviously. Yesterday, as part of the 10-year deal, we're halfway through the WWE-Saudi Arabia deal. Um, I tweeted somewhat about it yesterday. We're not going to talk much about it today. Um, but, you know, I've been interacting with a, a lot of people on Twitter lately, and I'm stupider for it, including this morning uh, around a subject that we will talk about today. Um, but, but I guess we'll talk what, – which, which, what should we talk about first? I was going to ask you because we have some things, but what should be the lead story today? I have WWE and Fox. Why – Lachlan Murdoch says they're not going to renew SmackDown. I have oh, this is going to be exciting for everyone. We're gonna we're gonna go through the J.P. Morgan Chase uh, TKO stock analysis. Mm-hmm. I share Which that. I read. Did yeah, you read it? Forty three yeah. pages. It's a I did not read the I didn't. PDF. I did not read the whole thing. But I you read didn't read it. it back to front. That's disappointing. But I kind of skipped um, over the UFC stuff. If I'm being honest, David Karnofsky. It was, Karnofsky like, a, it was did a great like reading. Job. 
it was like reading the Wrestling Observer newsletter. I just kind of skipped. Oh come over on, that the, that's it was better than that. I just skipped over all the more UFC more and, more uh, comprehensible than that. I, I skipped on. over all the MMA analysis and just stuck to the wrestling. Okay, uh, we, we'll uh, touch on that good. today. Uh, the PGA Golf Tour. We'll touch on the PGA today. Um, and then there's some, some AEW discussion, I think, to be had and uh, mm-hmm. some merchandise stuff, some general business metrics. What do you think we should lead off with here in the lineup? Well, I, I just wanted to say, Brandon, I want to commend your performance uh, over the last few days in regards to uh, discussing the Crown Jewel show in the uh, WWE's relationship in Saudi Arabia. Um, I know you had some tweets uh, yesterday, but you also had the, the very good conversation with um, – Kareem and, and with, with Pollock uh, earlier this week. And I want to say, Brandon, that you and John and, and you and Post really are the only major figures in wrestling media who I feel like are consistently covering the WWE Saudi Arabia shows and talking about what they actually are, which are propaganda shows sold by WWE to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia um, with the idea of, of, of selling the WWE's audience to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. So the WWE audience has a favorable view on Saudi Arabia beyond just as a place that presents wrestling shows, but as a wonderful country full of wonderful people and surely wonderful uh, government and wonderful policies. And as WWE has continued to run these shows consistently, consistently, I feel like they have largely achieved the goal of normalizing them in the sense that now pretty much both fans and especially wrestling media look at uh, these shows as just another WWE pay-per-view event, another PLE that's on the calendar um, and not looking at them for the unusual, uh, just kind of monstrous shows that they really are. And how much, are they for? How much I, does WWE get paid for these? I believe it's 50, a little over 50 million per show. Yeah. And it's well, a, fi- you know, a $500 million deal. What uh, does a WrestleMania gate do? Let's say one day of, of WrestleMania in, in one this One day era. of WrestleMania is, Ticket I think... Sales. It dep- I'm trying to think of some of the, it's kind of fluctuated, but I, I want to say like around 17 million. Is like now a, the, the, a single day will be 10. They, they did about 21, I think yeah. 21.6 was the two day total this year. Yes. Uh, so they're obviously very valuable to them, but I, I just think that it's sad to have seen that. I think when the shows first started and certainly the kind of first crown jewel event, you know, shortly after the Khashoggi murder took place, there was a lot more of coverage of these shows based around, you know, the problem the problematic nature of them and that as WWE has just kind of continued to push forward and continue to do them, they have become, that's fallen by the wayside. And now most people are like, Oh yeah, they're having a show this weekend. Should be pretty good. Let's talk about the main event, Ellie Knight versus Roman Reigns. And that's kind of what people are talking about. Um, and they're not talking about the real reason these shows exist and they're not to uh, present a good wrestling show that fans will, will enjoy. It's to, sell the kingdom of Saudi Arabia's image to wrestling fans. Um, I did not watch the show. I did hear from people who did that. The um, consistent praise of Saudi Arabia was uh, more uh, in your face than, uh, than maybe some previous shows had been. I know that they did do a in rings. This is not necessarily a a, a propaganda moment, but there was a a in ring kind of thing with a, a, someone who I believe is a a prominent Saudi Arabian actor. Um, He did it like, with Grayson Waller and the Miz um, where he like did the people's elbow and got like a baby face pop. Um, and what was clearly not aimed at the, uh, the fit the viewers at home, but aimed at the live audience. Um, 
I was told Michael Cole brought up that the falcon is the official bird of Saudi Arabia many, many times. I heard that was a, uh, a repeated point that he, he made. Um, I guess he had been uh, visiting the Saudi Arabia uh, Wikipedia page and noticed some of their official uh, things. They were in, in in Riyadh. They were in the capital. And I want to be clear that this is not – one thing that is the, the most easy to get wrong here about the criticism of these shows by WWE is we're not saying that – Fans in Saudi Arabia who live in Saudi Arabia shouldn't get to see a WWE show, not at all, That, but that this is a show that is paid for by the government to an exorbitant rate, three times a WrestleMania live gate, um, and it is for the purpose, not primarily to entertain the fans, which it may well – which it does, um, but more primarily to promote the government and its goals, um, the government being uh, one of the worst human rights abusers in the world. Um, unlike any other WWE show and unlike almost any other pro wrestling show in pro wrestling history with the possible exception of Collision in Korea. Um, so that's what's happening there. Um, but, but, but more importantly, why do you have to bring politics into this? Um, and, and additionally, uh, how dare you say this while you live in the United States? Well, the United States does bad things too. All governments are bad. Um, you probably, I know you're not an iPhone user, but you're probably a Samsung phone user. So how can you deal with the, the human rights abuses around the Samsung phone and then criticize human rights abuses in a, in a government like the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia? And additionally, why, why how dare you talk about international affairs today and not 364 days of the year the rest of the year well uh, i actually do as a journalist but that's beside the point um you know it's it's do you think the people that say that like where do you think those people are coming from because i have a few theories well this is i, I mean i think I think human nature lends itself to – I mean m most people are more interested in the person who's saying the thing than the thing that is being said. Um, mm -hmm. Especially on social media where people are naturally kind of curating personalities for and themselves. There's a like I, I don't think I expressed hardly any opinion. I, I did in a satirical way, I suppose. But just bringing up the fact that, for example – the Saudi government has sentenced a man to death for his tweets. It seems to be in retaliation to his brother, who's a, a more prominent enemy of the state. Um, but just pointing these things out, people assume that you have an opinion. I suppose that I do. I suppose that they're not wrong. Um, but I have not in in the original tweets asserted an opinion, but it is projected onto the onto the argument. Um, but why do they why do they use logical fit? Like, so what, what what it is it's red herrings and what aboutism? How can you say this when there's that? But um, where what do you think the root of that is? Do you think these are like WWE fans? But do you think these are like WWE fans who are naturally defensive about criticism to aim towards WWE, and so they're making these kind of logical jumps to dismiss your factual uh, statement about Saudi Arabia? Because they know it's coming from a place um, uh, uh, of criticism aimed at WWE, and that's where their defensive nature is. Do you think that potentially some of these people know. may be? I don't know, and I don't know if I should waste brain cells trying to figure it out. I think you were you were pulling a Dave Meltzer by uh, talking to uh, retweeting and uh, uh, some uh, some well, accounts see, with probably the, not that many followers. The re the replies. So these replies, I, I will admit, were prepared because I knew. I knew I was going to share. Here's a here's a human rights story about mm -hmm. how, how human rights are treated in, in Saudi Arabia by the government, and um, I know what the replies are going to be. 
So I may have, may or may not have drafted some of these replies in advance. So the, um, the emotional turmoil that I would normally feel while interacting with people on social media was dis, you know, was, was mitigated by the fact that I knew what was going to happen and I was ready to, to, and I think it was, I justify it. I rationalize it in my own head as like, it, it's that it's worthwhile to satirize these responses. And I think satire is a more effective persuader than, you know, direct conversation, at least in these cases and in social media. So I think it was worthwhile to do and maybe amusing for me to. You're more directly connecting with the audience that is under that is willing and interested in understanding your point as opposed to a, maybe a more reactionary social social media audience yeah. i don't expect to, to to persuade the person that's in the in the quote tweet you know yes this is the dave Meltzer logic which is I can, i'm teaching other people uh things while retweeting this person with one follower Chris Cole has suggested to me that that every time you you, you mention Dave Meltzer, we sh we should have you uh you know like like a swear jar that you have to put something in, into a jar. Uh, I would never suggest that, but I but I think Chris Cole has, has, has said that he's not here, but we'll catch up with him on that later. Um, but yeah, that's that's Saudi Arabia. So d saying Dave's name is uh is, is equivalent to cursing on this show on WrestleNomics. I don't is that the message you want to send? I I, I would <laughs> never say that. Um, so. What what should we go with after that? You wanted to lead off with Saudi Arabia. Is that your choice? Where, where should we go next? I mean, what else? What else do we have to say about Saudi Arabia that we? I don't have anything. I didn't have much at all to say about. No, I just I wanted to just commend you for being one of the few people that's willing to cover these things. I think the way that they should be covered. Um, let's let's start with the uh, let's start with the Lachlan Murdoch comments and kind of okay. WWE and Fox, especially if we look at the uh, I don't know the recent the the overnight rating for for SmackDown. Uh, the overnight rating not. doesn't look great. The prelim, the fast yeah. affiliate that came in, uh, looks like it's probably going to be one of the lower um, SmackDown ratings of the last few months. We'll see on Monday. It looks like it's around one point, or I'm sorry, two point one to two point one five million viewers. We'll see. I'm not aware of any preemptions that would have hurt the rating in, in the in the fast affiliate measurement. But we did have it, it, it's earnings season, and here we have Lachlan Murdoch, the CEO of Fox. Um, and he, it was the, you know, it was the first question on the Q and A for Fox's earnings call, um, where he said, "We have the, we have the audio that we will play now of Lachlan Murdoch being asked, why did you not renew SmackDown? What went into that decision?" Anderson, please go ahead. Thank you. Um, good morning, everyone. Um, after deciding on passing on the WWE renewal, can you share anything specific on how you evaluated the ROI of the deal in the context of driving higher? advertising and affiliate fee revenue, and then maybe just more broadly, can you discuss whether you expect to see any impact on future sports rights negotiations if the Disney charter renewal impacts the industry rate of cord cutting or affiliate fee growth going forward? Thank you. Hey, good morning, Rob. Um, there's a lot in there, so uh, let, me, uh, let me unpack it uh, uh, bit by bit, and if I, uh, I hope I don't miss anything. So... Uh, you know, how we, I think we've talked about this before, but how we analyze the WWE uh, renewal. Um, and, 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 you know, we, we look at, you know, all, all of our sports uh, uh, portfolio in, in the same way and on, on all new rights, uh, opportunities to acquire new rights in the same way. Um, we, you know, on the basis of that, that uh, analyst, uh, uh, 
analysis, sorry. Um, uh, we, you know, on both an advertising point of view, we, we were not hitting um, the advertising numbers due to the audience of the WWE uh, to make uh, 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 to, to return uh, for our return on investment to, to, to be above the levels that we would accept. But also, we did, didn't attribute enough um, um, uh, significant uh, uh, retransmission revenue uh, to the WWE either. So it made uh, sense for us to move on from them. They've, they've been a great partner uh, for, for many years, um, but just quite simply, we're very disciplined, and the RR didn't meet our um, our uh, uh, you know, pretty disciplined uh, parameters. So uh, so we wish them luck, and, and we moved on from them. Um, uh, you know, we're currently in. Um so there, there's Lachlan Murdoch. He kind of struggled to get through that, but there it is. Um, so what did but he really say good there? Ins- really good insight. We don't really see that much, like a real big media executive kind of talking about the strengths and weaknesses of having pro wrestling on their programming. And essentially the issue is something that has always plagued pro wrestling. I think probably since it was on the, uh, the Dumont networks uh, back in like the 1950s, which is, is this a story like Dumont network had trouble selling ads for, uh, well, I'm only, I only, I, I don't know for a fact. First of all, the Dumont network is kind of most well known for being the pioneers of advertising on television, like having commercial breaks in between um, moments of shows and things like that. There was kind of the first network to do that. Um, and wrestling was obviously on there, but I'm not sure if there's a direct link between that, but uh, wrestling has always struggled to get uh, advertising rates um, similar to a lot of other programming, uh, certainly a lot of other sports programming. Uh, and that is because of, whether true or untrue, and there's kind of data that you can use to argue both sides of that coin, that wrestling fans are of lower income and therefore have less expendable income to spend on products that are being advertised towards. Um, And that's something that every wrestling company seemingly has struggled with over the years and something that WWE has tried to shake. It's one of the main reasons that I think Vince is so ardent that what they're, they're not professional wrestling. They're not old Southern wrestling only watched by toothless hillbillies. They are sports entertainments and they are something totally different than professional wrestling. Um, But it's always been something that has kind of hurt them. And what, and really the, probably the main reason why, why WWE, despite you know, very strong ratings and a lot of hours of programming and 52 weeks a year and all that does not get the same kind of um, television deals that that major sports uh, organizations do. So Ad Age had uh, a good article here uh, earlier this week showing what the ad rates are for every broadcast program. So no, we don't have cable here. There's no Raw, no AEW, but we do have uh, SmackDown's rates. Uh, which we can sort by, say, looking at Friday. If we look at Friday and then sort this by who's got the most expensive rates on Friday, and, of course, this is broadcast only, so this is only ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox, uh, and the CW. Don't forget the CW. Uh, and, and by the way, don't do cocaine if you want to be on the CW. But anyway, um, Friday Night SmackDown, $51,000 per ad, which is below Shark Tank. And these are not CPMs, so a CPM... You know what CPM is, Jesse? Cost per minute? Cost per mile. So it's the cost per thousand impressions, I think is how you would say it. Um, so these are not CPMs. But this is the, actually the cost of the ad. So I believe that would be factoring in the number of viewers this show has. I don't know what, what timeline we're looking at here. The column says 2023 price. I'm guessing this is like the, the 
based on the average rating of the tri- of the previous quarter, maybe in the demo. Anyway, we have a number here, um, which which they they attribute to what they attribute to how we generate this data. Ad Ages survey is compiled using data from as many as six media agencies. So I'm guessing this is ad agencies. Anyway, I'm I'm gonna trust it uh, unless somebody disputes it. Fifty one thousand dollars for a SmackDown ad, which is slightly less than fifty five thousand dollars for a Shark Tank ad. SmackDown has better ratings in the demo, which is all that matters to ad rates. Total viewership is not does not determine ad rates. Viewership within certain demos determines ad rates. And Fox, uh, Fox's SmackDown has higher viewership in the demo, I think almost every week, if not every week this year. Um, it has beaten Shark Tank. Despite that, Shark Tank ads are more expensive. Um, why would that be? I guess maybe maybe some real data about the income level of the people who watch SmackDown versus the people who watch uh, Shark Tank. Maybe it's just the perception uh, when it comes to ad buyers, but that that's the case here. Um, but this is higher. So this this turns out to be fifty one thousand dollars per ad. You know, I did some rough math here, and I said, well, if I, if we got fifty one dollars per ad, that means that SmackDown's got about a sixty five dollars CPM, which is a lot higher than I would have thought. I've, I've been doing some models, you know, for, for this podcast in recent weeks where we were trying to estimate what the economics are, what how much revenue is really being generated against wrestling shows, and I was using like a CPM for a lot of these shows of like thirty dollars. So this is way higher than I would have thought. Um, but anyway, if we if we factor that variable in and say, all right, they're Gener- you know they're using about a sixty-five dollars CPM based on the average eighteen to forty-nine viewership of the trailing twelve months. That's what I used here, and I said, "All right, you've got about forty ad units, got about forty commercials, adverts, if you will, if you're in uh, other countries, per show, forty of them. And if you just say, all right, we got sixty-five dollars per, uh, you got sixty-five dollars CPM times about seven hundred and eighty-nine thousand viewers, you lop off the zeros there." Multiply by 40 units, you get about $2 million in ad sales per episode of SmackDown. How much does Fox pay SmackDown, though, per episode? About $4 million based on their $205 million average annual value. Just divide that by 52 weeks. So ad rates, of course, and this is not a surprise to anybody. Ad, ad revenue on the show is not being covered is not covering the cost, right? SmackDown, and I'm sure this is the case for Raw, I'm sure this is the case for AEW, the ad revenue that's being generated against the programming is not covering the cost of the show. So we have to get some more economics out of this to justify this in some other way. And that other way is carriage fees. What are carriage fees? Well, I was going to say, it's very important to distinct that for uh, a network or broadcast television network like Fox, the ad sales are the primary source of income that are coming in there as opposed to if they were to go on cable, which SmackDown will be returning to by going to USA, the value can come from carriage fees. So the ratings are much more important on cable um, in that regard because you want to be able to to get the revenue from carriage fees as opposed to solely relying on advertising revenue, which is mostly how – uh, you know, Fox, CBS, NBC, uh, and ABC operate. Yeah. So even the broadcast networks are are charging your cable company to carry them because they're still they're still on there and they're still charging um, Comcast and Spectrum. Fox is still charging them even to, to not just FS1, not just I don't know Fox News, of course, but they're also charging them to carry the broadcast network Fox, even though people can pick it up with their antennas. Most of them, most people don't. Um, so anyway, what Lachlan Murdoch is saying there is that we couldn't 
cover the cost in ad sales. We couldn't cover the cost in, in a contribution to carriage fees. In other words, we couldn't charge cable carriers or satellite carriers that much more, if much at all more, specifically because we have SmackDown. Um, so maybe, I, I, I don't know if they were able to generate anything extra, but they weren't able to generate enough that they felt it was worth it. Um, I don't think that the, the revenue that Fox generates against SmackDown has to, has to completely cover the cost. There's marketing value in there too, I think. And then maybe there's some branding value and some loss leader value that you could justify somewhere or another. Um, but it was not enough in their judgment, clearly to renew it at, at, at least the rate that uh, WWE wanted. So that's why Fox is not keeping SmackDown. Anything else to add there? No. Okay, we, we will move then. To J.P. Morgan, or should we do AEW next? Let's stick with J.P. Morgan, because that will allow us to kind of cover. It's, it's somewhat similar. In, uh, yes. somewhat so J.P. Morgan, um, on, this is an October 27th dated analysis that they put out uh, on the TKO stock. So it's a long PDF. If, you're a, uh, if you have a, a, a stock trading account with J.P. Morgan Chase, you can read this for yourself. Um, so they put out basically they do this big uh, financial model and financial estimate what they think the how they think TKO is going to perform and they put out a, a stock price target TKO will report earnings for the first time ever as a merged company they'll report earnings this coming Tuesday Tuesday afternoon they'll do that after the close of the market and then on Wednesday afternoon John Pollock and I will have a a uh, a Pollock and Thurston episode where we'll talk about the earnings results um but so JP Morgan is saying all right we know what smackdown was renewed at SmackDown was renewed at a 1.4 X increase. That is a 40% increase over what their current deal is worth. They went from a $205 million average annual value for SmackDown and they got a 40% upgrade disappointing to the market, but a 40% upgrade, which puts them at a $287 million average annual value. That deal will go into effect next year, October. Um, if you don't know, TV rights fees tend to be escalating over time. So it'll be a five-year deal. They'll get something less than $287 million at the beginning. And then towards the end of the deal, they'll actually be getting more than $287 million. It will average out to about $287 million. Um, so the big question is, what's Raw going to get? What kind of deal can Raw get? Um, will NXT have any factor in there? And who will buy it? Because NBC Universal, just to catch up to speed, is taking SmackDown. It didn't have SmackDown before. It was on Fox previously. We don't know if they're going to renew Raw. Raw may not stay with the USA Network. Raw might go to streaming, might go to Amazon Prime Video, might go to some other network, or it might stay on USA Network. I don't know. It might end up on a different night. In any case, J.P. Morgan, the analyst, David Karnofsky, who you'll hear on the Q&A if you listen to it, probably, uh, his base case for what Raw can deliver for a new deal will be a 42% increase, which would put it from an average annual value of $265 million to an average annual value of $375 million. Now he lays out a bear case, a bad case, you know, a worst case scenario and a best case scenario, a bull case. He says, okay, it'll be somewhere between a bear case of a flat deal and a bull case of a 55% increase, a 1.55 X increase. So that's, that's one analyst's opinion. Um, I, I would imagine that that's pretty close to what the market expectations have baked in for this stock price as it currently stands, which I don't know. Last I looked at it, it's in the low 80s uh, per share, right? What is it? 
as of the close of the market, eight, about $85 is where it closed on Friday. So the degree to which it's better than roughly 1.4 or worse than 1.4, the, I, I expect the stock to react accordingly. Um, so that's what he's expecting for a new deal for raw. Um, we're not going to talk about this in depth, but here's his financial expectations for uh, the, t- the, the renewal. Um, and we have some W uh, financial estimates. He's estimating $1.34 billion in revenue, which would be more than last year. It would be a new record and estimating increases year to year, which is natural that you'd expect that given that, TV rights fees are escalating over time, even though the SmackDown deal came in as disappointing relative to the market's expectations. It's still going to be an increase. It's still going to mean more and more financial records for World Wrestling Entertainment. Um, we did a financial estimate. They were, for, yeah. I was going to add, they're also very bullish on the concept of like cost savings and being, and the other big yes. thing was being able to negotiate kind of joint right. Um, aspects between WWE and UFC since they're all under one umbrella at this point and that potentially leading to more lucrative sources of revenue. Um, that was kind of one of the other major reasons I think they were high on WWE stock. Yeah. And and this is what Mark Shapiro and Ari Emanuel and Nikon are selling, right? There's all these cost synergies. Not only are we going to lay off a lot of employees and save a lot of money, but there's opportunities to work together to do international licensing deals that will help us monetize better. We might deal the ESPN Plus rights that UFC uh, has dealt and the WWE rights that has been dealt at Peacock. We might be able to deal those together. We might be able to run super weekends where there's a UFC event and a WWE event together and charging even higher site fee. There's there's a lot of opportunities to make more money together than apart. Um and we go over here. Here's all all of uh, WB's international deal values um, according to JP. What does he source this? WB JP Morgan estimates. Uh, note NBCU USA total value includes payment for archive subs. So these are the value according to JP Morgan's estimates assumptions. I think of what. WWE's TV rights deals are worth in other countries. We know that the, the new SmackDown deal with NBCU is $287 million. We know the current deal with SmackDown is 205 We know the Raw deal currently is 265 And then he has – so the number two deal, which we all agree is the number two deal, is the Sony deal in India, which he values at an average annual value of $43 million. Um, That has previously been reported as $50 million. So that's lower than – I at least believed it was in, say, 2020 when the deal started. Uh, the, the India deal will be coming up shortly after, so it'll, it'll expire, I believe, the end of 2024? I believe the end of 2024 it will expire, and then they'll have to make a new deal that will go into effect at the beginning of 2025. So, of course, U.S. is the most valuable TV rights market, followed by India, followed by... Are we putting Canada over the U.K. here? We are. How about that? So the Canadian deal, he's valuing at $20 million. I've assumed at other times that it's been like $7.5 million. It's a 10-year deal. That, that deal is coming to an end um, next year. right? He's got it as a 10-year deal with Rogers. So that'll be renewed maybe with Rogers, maybe with TSN. We'll see. But he's valuing that at $20 million, which is a lot more than I've thought of it in, in the past. But anyway, and then followed by the UK deal, the current deal with BT Sport, valued at estimated i should say at 14 million dollars per year so the uh they don't know when that's going to expire i'm guessing that that's going to expire at at the end of 2024 as well if it's the same length as the india deal um and then there's some other stuff here we don't need to go deeply into but i guess we'll we'll mention here that uh 
He's assuming that the Fox Sports deal in Latin America is 14 million. I would probably guess lower. Uh, and of course, we know the Peacock deal is worth 200 million dollars a year for the PLEs in the library. And then the NBC deal uh, in the Middle East, North Africa region. NBC is a television network that is controlled by the Saudi government, uh, and, and that is estimated to be worth 12 million dollars average annual value. So there's that. Um, interesting. Again, my big takeaway here is that he's estimating that the, the Canadian deal is worth more than the UK deal. Um, not sure about that. That seems high to me, but okay. And then we go through, is the sports media market dying? Well, if we go through these major deals that have been made over the last four years or so, um, almost every single one of them is up. The only one that was not an increase is this MLB ESPN deal that was made around May of 2021. That was only, uh, that was, it was only 80% of the value of the prior deal. However, I believe this is for fewer games. So in terms of like pound for pound content, I don't believe this was actually a decrease. ESPN took fewer games, paid less for it. Um, but I think it was a minor increase despite that. In any case, all these other deals are, are wholesale increases. Um, huge increase in the Formula One rights that were probably very, very low to begin with. It's estimated a 16 and a half Times increase for uh, for the Formula One deal that was renewed uh, in what, what was this June 2022. So, are we seeing sort of a downward trend? I guess so. Coming from this UEFA deal uh, that was done with Univision in August of last year, that was more than doubled, and then we had the uh, the Big Ten deal with Fox, NBC, and CBS that was also more than doubled. And it's there's not a ton of data points here that I would say this is that we can say this is an honest God trend, but. If you want to make that argument, here here comes the trend. Yeah, and, and each of these come with the kind of their own level of uh, context, right? The Big Ten deal, we can look at and say, well, look at all those bidders for the Big Ten. That probably drove up the price. Um, following that, you see a 1.7 increase, which would be a lower one. That's for the Big 12. And uh, as we've been discussed many times on this show, especially um, it's in uh, Chris Gullo's forte, is – uh, the Big 12 and, and college football and, and kind of the realignments that are going on. The Big 12 is going to be a much weaker conference in terms of drawing power uh, going forward. So for them to even get a 1.7 increase is probably good for them because um, they're kind of on the downfall in terms of popularity or expected to be on the downfall in terms of popularity. Um, and then we have the, you know, the NFL YouTube deal. I don't really know that much about that in terms of that's such a different deal than had kind of been happening before, which is essentially the Sunday it's the ticket. Sunday ticket. Yeah. It's a Sunday ticket going from direct TV to YouTube. Um, it's hard to really compare that to kind of just a renegotiation of rights fees. Um, but maybe not. Maybe we see, like you said, raw could be going to some sort of streaming service. I'd be fascinated to know, like, now obviously it depends on how much money they get. But if we are in a few years, if we're in a world where SmackDown is on Friday nights on USA Network and Raw is on like Amazon Prime streaming service, I would, I would obviously if they're getting a ton of money, that's that's one thing. But I would be kind of concerned about WWE's footprint at that point. That does not, to me, that does not give them a strong footprint. I think it would be a major mistake to move. Raw to a streaming service at this time, especially streaming service like Amazon Prime, which not a ton of people use. People watch Thursday Night Football, but and, and I, I just I don't think you can take foot foot. Every, people will do anything for football. That's why 
there's there's really big increases here for, for, for versions of football and why you know the NFL is immune to so many things and and everyone else runs away from competing against football. I, I, I they do they, people did find out how to use Amazon Prime mm-hmm. for the NFL, but I, I would think that that wouldn't carry over to the same it's percentage as about as many people's homes. I would think in the United States yeah, as access is, is. Yeah. Yeah. That's not, that's not the issue. But whether but it's I convenient just, for people to put it on their television is another thing. And just people in the habit of just watching on USA. And do you do, do carry all of those people over to Amazon prime? Um, Maybe you get some people who stopped watching because they couldn't afford cable, and now that since they have Amazon Prime, they'll they'll switch back on. I just I, I would think that if we if we, if that's what happens, and I'm not sure that that's going to happen. Um, we do know SmackDown is going to be on USA. I, I would say you that is a a major step down from a presence perspective than what they're at now, which is SmackDown on Fox, Monday Night Raw on USA. Um, yeah, the, the amount of watch time you could say, well, I mean, I'm sure if, if Raw is not on USA Network and is instead on Amazon Prime Video beginning in October 2024, the viewership for Raw will be significantly lower. I would not doubt that. Yeah, and I just – I don't know like – granted, you could say the same thing about cable TV, but some of these – being on some of these streaming platforms, it's almost kind of like out of sight, out of mind in that sense where – you're not going to see advertisements for Raw on other NBCU network show, NBCU networks. Um, maybe you'll see them during like Amazon Prime Thursday Night Football games, which would probably help. But it, I, I think like going to some, especially a streaming network like Amazon Prime, which seems more like a destination than a, than a um, I'm just going to scroll through and see what they have kind of platform. Uh, it's uh, I just don't know if that's a great spot for them to be. If they're on Netflix or something, that'd be totally different. Yeah, Netflix, the most used streaming service. There's probably people that have more access to Amazon Prime Video, but in terms of actual usage, we see that in the, in the Nielsen Gauge chart that <laughs> Netflix is used more than. Prime I also, and I, I have no real Prime evidence. Prime. I have no real evidence to back this up, but I'd also imagine like Amazon Prime, like people are going to Amazon Prime because they know something is on Amazon Prime that they want to watch, whether that's Thursday Night Football, whether that's a series they've been hearing about, or it's the new season of um, Invincible or whatever, uh, or the boys that they want to watch, as opposed to Netflix, where I get a lot, I think is more in the vein of people turn it on and we'll scroll through to see if there's anything good they want to watch. So Netflix just under... YouTube in terms of time usage and then followed by not by Netflix among streaming services is prime video. I would think mm-hmm. if, if we had the percentage of watch time that is spent on the USC network, that it's lower than Amazon prime's 3.6%. That being said, I don't know if I should think about that as one-to-one because USC network, I should probably think about more so as being this entire um, cable slice here, which is about 30% in September. Right, because um, generally, if you have cable going, going past it and seeing, yeah. oh, Raw's on. And genuinely, if you have cable, you have USA Network. Not every cable package is going to be like that, but it's a vast but a lot of them are. Yeah. I also just think, um, and also like a, ma- a vast majority of USA's watch viewership in general is WWE based. Um, yes, as opposed to Prime Video, that three point six percent has got to be scattered across so many different 
not only so many different programs, but just so many, like a wide variety of genres and things like that. You've got people watching movies. You've got people watching old TV shows. You've got people watching sitcoms. You've got people watching football. It's, it's harder to kind of, a lot of those people that are watching prime video are not going to be, are going to be harder to convert into wrestling fans than maybe uh, a, a USA network audience that might be watching just for sports or watching for cop dramas or something like that. Another thing that JP Morgan's analysis looked at is the cost per viewer hours. So of these deals, of these TV deals, comparing them to their viewership, who's charging the most per the number of viewers that they're delivering? Um, and this is, I think this is based on total viewership. Yeah. Cost per viewer hour. I don't think he converted 1849 here. This is probably P2 plus. Anyway, it is unsurprisingly the NFL at, at number one, NFL Thursday football with almost $3 per viewer hour, followed by college football on ESPN. Major League Baseball on ESPN, Major League Baseball on Turner, NFL, Monday Night, the EPL on NBCU. And then we get to UFC, the other part of TKO, on ESPN, charging about $1.87 per viewer hour. We go to about the middle of this chart, and we do find SmackDown here on NBCU, the new deal. So it's sort of, you know, all these other deals are much older, right? Because this is the newest deal on the chart. But SmackDown is being valued at $1.35 per viewer hour based on its viewership recently. And we have to go way, way down to the end, towards the end, to find WB Raw on NBC Universal. Currently, their current deal, $265 million, just under a dollar per viewer hour. Um, a lot of these are similar in, in, in this territory. Even NFL, uh, the old NFL Sunday, NFL Sunday Fox. What does that mean? There's no NFL Sunday Fox. Oh, the, the, the uh, Sunday Fox afternoon. NFL Sunday okay, Fox. Right. Is it, Followed by NFL about, Sunday CBS. Yes. Even that's about a dollar per viewer hour. In any case, then we go down to um, the current deal for SmackDown, 85 cents per viewer hour, and then way towards the end, only more valuable than the USA, uh, US Open Tennis on ESPN, is AEW on Turner, 37 cents per viewer hour, uh, obviously in, in its first long-term TV deal. And this is why there's reason to be optimistic that AEW, despite the criticisms that, uh, I don't know, at least I will levy against them in a moment, um, stands to be stands is, is way undervalued and stands to get a large increase in their next deal. Whenever that gets done seems pretty late in the cycle to me, but I think we're waiting for NBA rights to be renewed. Um, but just this, this is why it's easy to make an argument that AEW is undervalued because look, they're only getting 37 cents per viewer hour and look at their competitor here. Look at their, their, the comparable uh, program WWE. With it's this taking their larger viewership into account, they're getting eighty five cents under their current deal. Their new deal is, is going to be worth like what is that five times five times the value something like that. Uh, SmackDown is a dollar thirty five versus thirty seven cents for AD, for AEW. So that's why AEW is viewed as undervalued and likely to get maybe a doubling a tripling of their current deal. Um. Who are the bidders for Raw? I guess we kind of talked about that. I don't know if I want to, want to dwell on that, but he, but he points out D Disney, Amazon, <clears throat> um, and maybe even Warner Brothers Discovery, maybe WB and AEW will end up on the same network set. NBC Universal, and less likely, but not impossible, Netflix and Apple. I would say I, I concur with all these notions. Disney, the player there would be FX, not ESPN. Um, and there's some interesting... So so this is, this is uh, fascinating to me because, you know, one of the one of the things that makes me feel like a fish out of water when I read these analyst reports as a person who reports on wrestling business to wrestling fans largely is that of and, and this is kind of the way I feel 
especially early on when I started call, covering the WWE earnings calls, is that you know there's this great disparity between what wrestling fans think about, care about, and talk about, and what equity analysts think about, care about, and talk about when it comes to this company. Um, but here's a crossover. There's a whole paragraph, a couple paragraphs in here about something called All Elite Wrestling, which was officially announced on January 1st, 2019. The promotion launched with Cody Rhodes' Young Bucks, who's backed by Tony Khan, who's the son of Shad Khan. Uh, WWE held their first pay-per-view in May 2019. And then in July, Warner, Warner Brothers, uh, Warner Media at the time, uh, announced a TV deal not to be outdone. WWE announced that they had an agreement with NBC Universal for NXT. Uh, the Wednesday Night Wars happened. Uh, the Wednesday Night Wars ended on April 13, 2022, uh, after their head-to-head battle. Following this, Dynamite viewership saw gains in audience. In January 2020, Warner Media and AEW signed a new rights agreement for 2020 to 2023. That's not including the the option. With a total deal value of $175 million, average annual value of $43.75 million. This all adds up. I, you know, we, this is, these are all our assumptions that we talk about often. Terms included in an, an additional hour of weekly taped content that was called Rampage eventually. That's on Friday. Blah, blah, blah. They, they added Collision. That's a two-hour show on Saturday nights now on TNT. Undoubtedly, AEW is the most successful wrestling organization outside of WWE since Turner back WCW in the late 90s. The success, however, has not come at the expense of WWE, which in 2023 is seeing record attendance levels, growing television viewership, and strong demand for merchandise and licensed products. The two promotions have previously competed for talent, likely leading to some inflation in salaries. We don't like that. Though recently appear more willing to trade wrestlers. WWE has also invested in its own feeder systems, including NXT and its NIL program. The ability of two promotions to successfully coexist, albeit with one as the clear leader, we think should soothe concerns that the rise of the PFL is mutually exclusive with UFC's success. What do you think about that? Is that an accurate description of the dynamic between AEW and WWE? I mean, the, the as far as the second paragraph goes, it, the logic is, is, is sound in the sense of that it doesn't appear that AEW's rise has Im- negatively impacted WWE's ability to do strong business. Um, if anything, you could argue that it's helped it because it has um, helped create, I think, a distinctive second brand and, and, and in some ways has helped rally WWE fans to be more supportive of the WWE product. Um, beyond social media, beyond, beyond the people who, who just fight with each other on social media, is that significant? I don't know if I actually believe this theory, but I've heard it floated many times in the idea that part of the reason WWE fans have become more accepting and optimistic about the product in general is because they uh, have a, a instead of the mutual enemy for WWE being WWE management, it is now a rival wrestling company that produces another type of pro wrestling that WWE fans might be WWE fans towards. hate AEW. Not, not, I don't think, I think a majority of WWE fans are neutral towards AEW. Um, but it may help some of those louder voices that were very critical of WWE have either left to watch AEW full time and thus created a more harmonious environment within WWE's fan base. Um, well, also perhaps giving some of the more hardcore WWE fans a, a common enemy to rally against instead of booing Vince McMahon or John Cena or Roman I think Reigns. there's one, one way we, we could confirm or deny this is that we have Samantha Irvin go on before the show. Don't do this on the air. But go, go on you know, in, in the dark match part of, of, a, of a Raw or SmackDown taping and say, what do we all think about AEW and see what the crowd reaction is? 
will we get an authentic crowd reaction or will we get Kevin Dunn pressing the boo button? Uh, boo well, I, I, I'm asking web, web file. without the cameras on. Um, <laughs> he, he does even show the, the, some ones in a war line chart graphs here. We, we know these well, I think. Um, and TKO put out an AK filing here. Uh, breaking down the segments. Oh, we're going to get WB and UFC separated on Tuesday. This is great news. So that's, this will be the, the format going forward, I would expect. Um, and we've got at least four segments for each, which are media rights and content, live events, sponsorship, and consumer product licensing. Um, in terms of media, WB has more media revenue than UFC. In terms of live events, WWE runs a lot more live events, even though ticket prices for UFC events are way, way higher. And the gates for individual UFC events are way, way higher than the highest WWE uh, gates. Um, but but WWE, because they run so many more events, has a larger live event revenue, about $250 million for the trailing 12 months versus $150 million for UFC. Sponsorship revenues, though, way higher for UFC, about $176 million in the trailing 12 months in sponsorship revenue for UFC versus only $66 million for WWE. But consumer product licensing, things like merchandise and their licensing of trading cards and partners like Panini and uh, licensing through Fanatics, things like that, WWE much higher there, $125 million versus UFC's $56 million. Um, WWE runs far more live events than UFC does. Far more. Uh, the probably, profitability. Probably by multiples, yeah. And the profitability of the UFC live events is probably significantly higher, I would imagine. I would think so, yes. It's interesting to note the sponsorship revenue, kind of what we were previously talking about, which is despite, I think, UFC having a lot of its own stigma in terms of the kind of audience it attracts and the, the sport is barbaric and things like that, the sponsorship revenue is still much, much higher than, than pro wrestling. Yeah. Wrestling. Why is that? Is that just a stigma? I mean, I, I think I would, there. Is. I would think so, and and, the, and the, the just the lack of it being a legitimate sport. I think that's that makes UFC more attractive comparatively to right. WWE. WWE is this fake, you know, thing that only idiots would watch. You know it's fake, right? Um, well, and there's demographics. It's entertainment, okay? It's not sport. Well, and th there's demographic data and income data that would suggest that WWE does maybe over-index with lower-income people. What are you trying to say? Uh, what am I trying? I'm trying to say all WWE fans, all wrestling fans, really, are poor people with no uh, revenue. It's an you, expendable you can, income. You can tweet spend. Jesse Collings at Jesse Collings on Twitter, formerly known as X. Oh, no, sorry. Mm -hmm. I'm yeah. known for my high Twitter presence these days, too. So I'll definitely see it immediately. Um, but uh, that is, you know, part of the reason. Now, both WWE and AEW would argue that while their fans maybe have demographics that suggest lower income, their fans are extremely loyal and willing to uh, shell out and certainly willing to defend on social media the uh, the products that they endorse. So you you could have the WWE uh, social media platform to to boost your uh, your product if you were to advertise with them, especially these these last two. Uh, data points here sponsorship and consumer product licensing as you mentioned sponsorship revenue for ufc is much higher than than that of wwe and conversely or inversely consumer licensing consumer product licensing is much lower for ufc than it is for wwe i mean just thinking about merchandise you know the the ip of wwe is 
much more marketable, I would think, than than that of UFC. Um, I, I did look there. You can get a Conor McGregor shirt. I don't know if you would want to wear a Conor McGregor shirt, but you can get a Conor McGregor shirt. Um, just, it's easier to think about WWE shirts being desirable versus UFC shirts, especially for personalities. It's kind of the nature of the two different businesses they're in, I guess. Now, the does the Uf, the Conor McGregor shirt, does UFC, they get a cut of that, I'm assuming? Is there's that no official license? There's no, there's no uh, fighters association. So, so is that Conor McGregor shirt you were describing, is that an officially licensed UFC product? It's um, on the UFC store. Okay. So yes, that would be similar to buying a Roman Reigns shirt or something like that, presumably, in terms of how it factors into consumer product licensing. Um, yeah, I can't, I can't say I, I see a lot of UFC merchandise around. Um, I tend to see more like the brands maybe associated with UFC, like um, – Everlast and things like that, but even then. So maybe this is an, a, another indicator of how complementary these companies can be to each other. UFC appears to have a lot more strength with sponsorships. Maybe that can help WWE. Maybe deals for sponsorships can be made together um, in consumer products. Maybe WWE has a lot of relationships and access and resources that can help UFC monetize their licenses better. Um, so that's interesting. So that's all for the JP Morgan, I think, unless you have more there. No, I'm good. And now, from front office sports, um, this came on. Was this on the 29th? I, I could have sworn I, when I looked at this. Oh, is this date up here? Anyway, on the 29th, which was Sunday, a week ago, uh, this report saying the PGA Tour rejects Endeavor's investment bid. So uh, the, the key sentence here in this article, an interesting wrinkle is that the investment would have come through newly formed TKO Holdings, which was created out of UFC and WWE. So this bid that Endeavor reportedly made uh, on the PGA Tour, in which Ari Emanuel confirmed that they made a bid on the PGA Tour, a minority stake, um, that was rejected by the PGA. But if it was accepted, it would have been a part of TKO. So it would have been a stake that TKO would have would have held would have owned um just uh, an example of how i think over time you know th this this tko company might not be only ufc and WWE for very long that there's bound to be other sports that get involved here uh dana white seems to want want to make some moves into boxing maybe that becomes part of it and maybe other sports properties who knows as well in the future Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? 
Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Okay. Oh. Oh, now it's time. It is time for an unimportant announcement. I know everyone's really excited. We have a great, great show here. And we have a really, really unimportant announcement and that everyone has been waiting for and excited for. And it is that something that's actually been the case for a week or two now, maybe three, is that you can start your own free trial, seven days, seven day free trial. If you've not already started a free trial, I don't, know if, I don't know how it works if you've been a subscriber in the past and you've lapsed, but you can have a seven-day free trial of the WrestleNomics Patreon at patreon.com slash WrestleNomics. You will get this podcast every week. You will get my TV ratings analysis reports. Uh, you will get various other news updates, the viewership spreadsheet access, the monthly reports, including YouTube, merchandise, Google Trends, Smash Counts. Those are coming out soon. Some of them are already out, and the podcast slides every week. That is my unimportant announcement. So... Um, there was another, um, not huge, not huge announcement, but an important announcement by Tony Khan that he hyped on social media for a couple days in advance. And then he revealed to be the pre-sale dates for all, for all in. Um, now I have been critical of this and someone responded to me saying, I hate to be a stickler, Brandon. But in this instance, Tony is technically, technically being misquoted. His tweet said important announcement, not big, not huge, not major. So it, it's, it's, it's our fault in the end for reading. More Brandon, into you're not going to reveal who this person was. I'm going to protect, protect his identity. We don't need. To uh, well, I, I've heard that getting your attention is very important for people on Twitter in order to, to enhance their own clout. So I'm surprised you haven't learned anything from earlier this week. Yeah. Well, we have to, we have to protect our sponsorship uh, license. So, so when, when you, when you first saw that Tony Khan had a big announcement or a major announcement or whatever the terminology was earlier this week before dynamite, did you think it was going to be like a really, really big announcement? Like you personally, at this point, I'm more skeptical, I think, than others. That yeah, I, I did not, I did not get the sense that this was going to be a particularly gigantic announcement. I feel like there's actually different terminology they would use in that case be, because was, of the adjective. I think. Well, I think like if let's say You're it was parsing the, new, the adjective. Let's say if it was the new TV deal, right? Which is probably the biggest thing they could announce right now. Um, I think that. Uh, like that would be have been hyped up way bigger than this. I mean, just so the fact on what that, it consists of. Yeah. If it's if it's just that we're going to continue to be on TNT and TBS for another five years, that's not that material to 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 fans. I think you're expecting that that these shows going to be on the networks indefinitely as it is. Yeah. If it's if it's certain content being on Max as part so, of subscription, that's going to allow fans to save money. That's different. Yeah. So to me, it was like I I was I guess I wasn't underwhelmed by the announcement at all because I had figured that it wasn't like going to be that life shattering. Um, and perhaps 
Now, that doesn't say that this wasn't a mistake to promote it like that because you have to know your audience. Um, but I do think that wrestling fans have a habit of getting very, very excited, letting their imaginations get them very, very excited about something. It, it, it is our fault after all. It is not your fault because it's it's the uh, company's uh, responsibility to kind of understand the audience and promote accordingly towards that level. Um, but I think that I could see it in Tony's mind. I could see how I could see how Tony's mind works in the sense of I can see him thinking, "Okay, all right, we're gonna promote this uh, announcement for later tonight." This did appear then, to pop a quarter hour somewhat. And then later, people, you know, jumping to the most fantastical uh, conclusion of what that big announcement could be. And that's obviously those tend to gain the most traction on social media. So other people see them. Um, if you recall correctly, uh, going back to the the debut of Christian Cage in AEW, I forget the specific pay-per-view. I want to say maybe it was Revolution. Um, you have a Hall of Famer. Yep, there was the announcement that someone big was coming to, to AEW. It was one of Tony Khan's biggest, his favorite wrestlers of all time. Um, and Edge, people, Edge, Edge was anticipating, this is a new era. It's been a new era since Adam Copeland has been in, in AEW. Would, would you disagree? I wouldn't disagree, but that's a different, that's a different conversation. <laughs> um, a coincidence? Yeah. No, I know. Um, uh, but uh, I think that... Um, but when Christian Cage came out, everyone was like, saw him as hugely disappointing because people, the Rock, whose name was being tossed around, maybe Kurt Angle, um, and then Christian Cage was seen as kind of a disappointment um, because the promotion I mean, people had jumped to the biggest conclusion possible. And I think there's that's a dream how- match, dream match that was going to be announced a couple weeks ago. Dream match: yeah. Brian Danielson versus Andrade. That's a dream mm-hmm. match. It's a nice match. It's an exciting match. We need to, to, to hype it for days as a dream match will be announced. What will it be? Speculate away. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, that's um, it's one of those things that I think you have to know your audience when you're promoting these things. And you have to know how to set the expectations appropriately so you can achieve the, the golden goal, right? Which is to... Uh, under under promise and over deliver. Okay. Um I think Tony Khan has damaged his credibility, if not with the prior overhype of announcements and th- and things to come that you should get, get anticipated for and uh and speculate about. Certainly with this one. I think this is this is added to the pile. Uh to to undermine the credibility of these announcements more than ever. Would you disagree? I think that on top of that, I also think what is one of the uh, what was one of the main LOL TNA kind of things? Um, I don't know. Dixie Carter has an announcement. Oh, really? Okay. That, yeah, you don't remember like every week there was something like Dixie Carter has an announcement. And it was never anything that interesting. I've, I've erased uh, everything about TNA from my mind, um, but I, but I think that's what people think about when they think of Tony Khan. It's a negative. These kind of things is a negative association with um, someone who most wrestling fans don't think highly of. And a major issue with – a major challenge AEW has had to face. And I, I would say the Paul White reveal is another major example of this. But 
one of the most significant challenges AEW faces as a company is not only for that for it to be good, but to also be good in a way that is very different than what WWE has done and to and to a lesser extent TNA and to certainly avoid mistakes that those companies have made. And for the Paul White reveal, like in a in a in in a vacuum, you could logically explain why Paul White is now getting involved uh, on like the babyface tag team side, which is the idea that okay, he is a known name, he is a recognizable star, he has not been, I think, overly featured, certainly as an in-ring competitor in the company. And so people will get excited for when he comes out and he, you know, is on their team. They're bringing in this giant ringer baby face that people know. But the issue with that is that we're not operating in a vacuum. We're operating in the real world. And in the real world, Paul White has been viewed as kind of a overpushed, tired WWE act for the past 10 years or so. What year did he debut on WWE television? 1995, I think. Sounds um, right. But we, we were, we've been through, you know, almost a decade of him in WWE where he was kind of the most boring challenger for a world title anyone could have. Um, and so even though you could argue, well, in AEW, this is kind of a fresh idea and it makes sense to do it. The fact is that a vast majority of the wrestling audience has already seen that idea played out many, many times and they're sick of it. And it was a mistake WWE made a lot. And now AEW is making that same mistake. Many years later, in 2023... You know, when it was tired in 2013. And I think that is that is just kind of encapsulates one of the major challenges that AWs had to have, which is you can't just make sense uh, within the parameters of your own company. You have to think about how this fits in with fans expectations from their experiences as wrestling fans, which for a vast majority of your viewers largely predates AWs existence. So uh, this this past Wednesday's episode of Dynamite was received with a lot of criticism. Um, we'll talk about whether that criticism matters. Um, so if we look at Cage Match, which um, I think we're not the only people looking at Cage Match. Uh, I think Tony Khan is looking at Cage Match too. Uh, this was, as of this morning, this was the fifth lowest rated Dynamite in Dynamite's history, going back to October 2019, uh, rating at a 5.2 right now. Um, it is only rated higher than three other episodes. Um, and I, I picked out this one comment that I thought was representative of some of the sentiment out there. Uh, this, this person said on Cage Match, I've been a fan of AEW since Double or Nothing 2019. Every week I feel like AEW is getting farther and farther from what they set out to do in this wrestling world. I'm not sure if I want to continue watching AEW anymore. The main selling point of AEW was that it was not WWE, but lately I feel like they're becoming wwe light um this, this person is not the only person unless it's a, if it's not a bot on cage match this is this is not the only person who's expressed sentiment like this that i've heard you know, that i've heard feedback about the show from um we did put out um oh actually uh aew have you seen the new logo for aew no i have not there's they i think they're 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 rebranding and responding to this uh this criticism that they're getting and have you seen this this is uh oh all Elite Entertainment. Entertainment. This, this, the W is now just it's it's rotated ninety degrees. Um, yeah. But anyway, um, so I I did uh, tweet something this morning from the WrestleNomics account sure. asking for asking people if they felt that um, WWE or that AEW has been more like um, 
WWE uh, mm-hmm. in, in recent times. And I feel stupider for reading some of the comments, but I'll pick out some of the more thoughtful comments. Um, talent like Black, that is Alistair Black, uh, Buddy, Andrade, Ruby, Storm, that's I think Tony Storm, Page, Miro, CJ, Tony Nice, Strong, Red Dragon, all did not need to be signed to AEW. I'm sure I'm missing some. Flooding your roster with NXT and main roster uh, people was... Uh, was the fastest way to alter perception. Uh, another comment. W moved closer to the formula AEW used early on, and it's made them much better. Exciting returns, more wrestling, less scriptedness when promos are happening. Another comment. Still an, AEW is still an alternative. The Lucha 3-way, with those moves and an unsigned talent, would never be seen on, on WWE programming. Uh, someone else said, yes, they are becoming more like WWE. Too many comedy acts, too many people on the show that have modest in-ring ability, too many storylines that make the matchups less fun. Uh, another comment, too much focus on comedy, like the stuff with Roddy Strong and Tony Storm. Another comment, last one I'll read. Yes, over-reliance on legends, wins and losses don't matter, too many belts, bloated roster. Are these just the vocal minority who are complaining and whining about everything, or is this meaningful towards uh, some indication about how the wider market is feeling? I do think like when you go back to I've followed the cage match kind of ratings for the dynamite and I read a lot of the comments that have been posted on there, including the one that you showed uh, earlier. And I do think it's I'm only excerpting a small part. Well, I well, and I think it's important when you read those comments, because sometimes on cage match, I'm kind of like I read the comments and I'm kind of like, okay, uh, some of them I'm not 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 saying they're bot accounts, but just did you run through an AI detector? I think some of the analysis of the product that is displayed on, on some of the cage match ratings for both WWE and AEW programming uh, is, is not analysis that I would value very highly. Um, but in this instance, there were a lot of comments like the one that you shared. that were very similar, which were people that were saying, I'm an enthusiastic AEW fan and I was very frustrated and I'm becoming much more frustrated and less interested in the product. And I do think collectively that matters. I do not think it is a, um, but these are just nerds on cage match, aren't they? They don't matter. Um, well, we'll see that reflected in, in data. And usually those – usually the online sentiment is ahead of the curve in a lot of these um, terms, situations. I think um, – you know, I, I didn't watch Dynamite live. I watched it – I actually I caught the West Coast feed um, on Wednesday night. And I was, uh, I was, I was uh, talking to some people online – shortly after 10 o'clock Eastern time. And I was kind of scrolling through people who were watching dynamite uh, live and their thoughts. And it was super, super negative people saying, Oh my God, this is terrible. This is awful. All this stuff. And then I, and I asked and I said like, Hey, I watched dynamite yet. Was, was dynamite any good? And people were like, Oh my God, no, do anything else with your time than watch dynamite. So it's like, Oh man, it sounds really bad. And then I watched the show and I thought it was a fine two hours of wrestling. I was not uh, – did not poison me or anything like that. Um, but I do find – so I find it kind of interesting that this, this episode was kind of seen as a lot of people's breaking point with the, with AEW or at least uh, where the red flags have really started to pop up in terms of people being like, whoa, I don't really like where this is going. Because um, to me, it was a pretty average episode of television. Uh, no better or worse than than uh, than what I would consider an average hour of television, and but I do get the sense that there is a a number of different factors in play that have contributed towards a growing fan resentment 
of, of AW, the AW product. And I, I, I can't pin it on just one thing. And I do think that there's a, a pretty wide diversity of negative feelings across the board. And I think that was kind of displayed in what some of the comments you read from, from your, uh, your post on Twitter and in, in the cage match readings. And those are, you said there's no factors. Yeah. Well, I think, I think, I mean, there's a bunch of things we just talked about Tony Khan's um, announcements, right. Kind of, Going into this great, and, and then you can throw in, I think, how he handled the entire CM Punk Young Bucks feud, um, and kind of ha- how he handled that entire situation, um, is working towards this broader sense of losing trust in his ability as a uh, manager of a professional wrestling organization. Mm-hmm. I think there is, um, I think the MJF stuff, I think, is, is, is I think it's helping some fans get more invested in the product because I think some fans really like it. And when you say the Um, MJF stuff, you mean? I think MJF as the world champion involved in a lot of comedic angles, a lot of backstage comedy. You mean that? Yeah, a lot of backstage comedy, a lot of, um, you know, backstage skits and antics and and things like that. I think that maybe some fans are getting more into that. Maybe the main event built around not winning and losing, but scissoring. Right. Um, And those scissors sell. um, Those scissors sell like you would not believe. Yeah, I think that I think that might be impacting some fans' negative views. I think a flood of WWE talents. I I don't think having all of like the Aleister Black and Keith Lee. and Andrade type people, I don't really see that as a problem because I don't see them really as WWE talents. They did come from WWE. They did spend time in WWE, but they were also, you know, longtime wrestlers before they stepped foot in WWE and WWE spent a a period of time where they just, um, you know, stockpiled a ton of, of, of indie talents and talent from other countries. And it's when those talent becomes available, you, you go get them in a lot of cases. I do think the over-reliance on older WWE stars, like really signature WWE wrestlers like Adam Copeland, like Paul White, who I know Paul White hasn't been prominently featured, but he, he was featured on this episode, which is kind of sending people down the wrong path. Uh, he barely standing in Paul White. Yeah. Um, looking too stable. Yeah, so when you have people like Adam Copeland and Paul White and Christian – uh, people that are really historically associated with WWE. A couple, couple weeks ago, career. you had RVD on the show, the Hardy yep. Boys, Ric Flair. Oh, yeah. We'll talk about him in a moment. Yeah. So you have just all of these people, um, almost all of whom are past their prime. And even if you can argue in a vacuum that many of them are capable of strong performance, like I think everyone would probably be in agreement that Christian Cage has been a really good figure um, and personality in AEW as a performer. But you also have to balance that out with does this, what kind of message is this sending to fan bases in general, which is that we are committed to putting you know the TNT title on a, a 50-year-old ex-WWE guy, um, even if that person has been quite capable in their role. Um, and so I think all of that stuff adds up. Um, and there's always been perception challenges with AEW dating back to the very incarnation of the company. Um, okay. So Wednesday's Dynamite was received with a lot of criticism. Um, 
The next day, AEW punches back and announces wrestling legend Ric Flair, who had debuted on television the prior week, signs a multi-year deal with AEW. The Nature Boy's new Wu Energy Drink is announced as the exclusive energy drink of AEW. So if you're mad that AEW didn't put on a good show, don't worry. Ric Flair is going to be here for multiple years. This is good news, right? This is this uh, mitigated the uh, the concern of any fans who were uh, not feeling great about the, the product after Wednesday. Yeah, I think it's a it's a kind of a, a, a double punch in terms of you feel bad about the product and then they announce this but which, by WB a double punch to to mitigate the criticism and 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 slam w, the haters by, by WB. AEW punching punching their fan base and then punching them again is more like it. Um, I mean, as a fan personally, I have no use to seeing Ric Flair on television. I don't need to see him on television anymore. I don't. He's one of the biggest wrestling stars. I don't get. I don't get a nostalgia kick out of him. Dave named the award after him. A lot of his a lot of his a lot of his performances have been sad lately. Um, if you, if you read just, his Wikipedia page, don't read the paragraph about playing Ride from Hell. Okay, stop yeah. reading at that point. I mean, that's another aspect of it where you probably – anytime you can get a you know, geriatric potential sex offender on your product, you just have but, to do but, it. But TV executives will recognize him, and maybe that will help them make, make TV deals and, and other licensing deals, business deals, sponsorships. You have Ric Flair. You know that name. Everybody knows that name. And to be fair, when Flair had been announced for Raw – he in recent years he has shown the ability to to pop numbers, um, and he does have a level of cultural cachet even with younger people, which you wouldn't think given that his peak as a wrestler was forty years ago. Um, and if you're not paying his salary, if it's in tied in with this energy drink sponsorship, you could say, "Oh, we're getting Ric Flair for free. Why wouldn't you do that?" Um, but again, it's that whole message of. Do we want to be seen as the retirement home for old wrestlers uh, when the opposite was true for the foundation of the company, right? It was this new, exciting product pushing people on national television that had never been pushed on national television before. They had all these wrestlers under 30. They were going to be big stars. There was room for new people to grow. And now you just add more and more of these acts that, because you're paying them a high salary, kind of demand a lot of TV time. Now, granted, you have a lot more TV time with the addition of Rampage and Collision. But now it's like, all right, Adam Copeland's got to get his 15 to 20 minutes. Chris Christian Cage just got his 15 to 20 minutes. We got Sting doing this huge angle, 15 to 20 minutes for him. Um, Chris Jericho, you know, he needs his 15 to 20 minutes. And you, all this stuff kind of adds up and there becomes less they just, room they for – need more TV time, another TV show or make the TV shows longer. Maybe that's the solution here. Well, it's probably not because you have a limited amount of time people can dedicate each week to watching wrestling. And you have a that's – a, that's a resource you need to allocate. You can't necessarily just create more of it and hope that solves your problem. Um, what does this tell us anything about what what moral standards there are for people's behavior in the past, and what's a disqualifier for being hired by AEW? Um, he's alleged to have sexually assaulted a flight attendant in tw- in two thousand two in the quote unquote plane ride from hell. Um, mm-hmm. I believe there's stuff in his book where he he talks about some let's say the least bad behavior. Um. Does this tell us about, you know, where, where the line is for AEW in terms of hiring talent or personnel in general? And does that matter to – how much does it matter at all? 
it's hard to say because in in any business field, right, the line exists based on how valuable you can be as an asset to a company or an organization. In football, Deshaun Watson can sign a $200 million contract despite numerous, numerous allegations of sexual misconduct against him because the belief is, well, this man can really help us win a lot of football games. Um, in entertainment, other people get more shots because, okay, this person is money at the box office or we have a lot invested in this person, so we're not going to get rid of them despite a pattern of troubling behavior, um, such as Ezra Miller. Um no one's hurrying to, to sign Matt Riddle, I've noticed. No. Um, and Ric Flair, because he's an icon, like, in, because Ric Flair is so famous that an energy comp- drink company that apparently has a lot of money can be like, we want to make a whole energy drink just about you, Ric mm-hmm. Flair. Um, he's seen as valuable enough that his sexual misconduct uh, allegations can, can, uh, can, can be kind of ignored. I guess. And I guess it's disappointing to see AEW fall down that road, which has plagued this industry from pretty much any company. Every company in the world has been willing to look the other way for uh, talent that they think can draw them money. And one of the reasons Ric Flair has been able to get away with so much stuff over the years is because he's drawn money for people uh, and he's made money for other people. And that has kind of enabled this lifelong history of of abuse and behavior because there are so many you mentioned like what's in his book and you mentioned the plane ride from hell which kind of everybody knew about and was kind of really pushed back into public conscious due to the dark side of the ring episode yeah but there are dozens and dozens if not hundreds of like rick flair stories um in people's books that people have talked about in podcasts that there have been rumors about that would be you know, fireable offenses today if they happened. I remember reading Jim Ross's book and Jim Ross kind of casually tells a story about how like uh, they ha- he had these t- – he was in a limo with, with Ric Flair and Ric Flair was trying to court these two women and they were in his limo with him and Ric Flair didn't feel like there was a lot of progress being made. So he just took his <laughs> out and they, they ran out of the limousine and Rick just kind of shrugged and said – Oh, you know what? That that works 50% of the time. So, you know, it was worth a try because I didn't think it was going anywhere. And that's like a story like Jim Ross just kind of casually tells in his book. And it's like if that happened today with an active talent, um, that person would be fired. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Tommy Dreamer got suspended as sort of a, a side effect of defending, you know, defending Ric Flair's yeah. actions on the on the plane right field. He got suspended from Impact for mm-hmm. a certain amount of time. I believe he got suspended from Busted Open for a certain mm-hmm. amount of time too. But if a wrestler today, a major star – did what I just described, what was described in Jim Ross's book, and that came out now, that person would be fired. Um, or at the very least, very harshly punished. To Ric Flair, there is no consequences, and there really has never has been. Um, All right. So from from there, I, to, to sum up this larger conversation about AEW and where AEW is going, whether this is a turning point, I, I guess the, the, the larger theme that I feel, and I think some other people are feeling, is that in 2019, AEW had an opportunity to be a real alternative to a WWE product that people, for various reasons that we don't need to detail right now, felt badly about and disgruntled about. And talent, too. And that's part of the reason why the AEW opportunity was possible. And now, as much as ever, 
AEW is feeling more just like an additional five hours of weekly content that relies heavily on names of the past um, and does a lot of other things that have that, that frustrated those very fans who were not satisfied with WWE um, doing things like, you know, being afraid of, of doing clean finishes, wins and losses, feeling not like they don't really matter, uh, doing a lot of dialogue backstage, whether it's with the invisible camera or whether it's with a, a, an interviewer standing in the middle of them so they can perceive, perceive with their dialogue that they would, you know, realistically have as a private conversation. Um, these scattered, wacky attempts at comedy um, that feel more like they're what they really are functioning as is as ironic defense mechanisms against the fact that you're in a pro wrestling show rather than being something that is truly entertaining. Um, but I digress. Um, and it, it, this, this all culminates to feel like AEW had a real opportunity to deliver a, a product that was more competitive with WWE. And we can go back to late 2021 where the demo came really close to Raw's demo. And it felt like AEW was going to really come up to be not just a strong number two, but was going to really fight with WWE in some ways to be number one. And I think a lot of people had faith that AEW could become significantly more popular, could continue on that momentum and become a show with higher ratings and higher ticket sales and greater visibility in the overall culture and greater popularity for itself as a company. And in this last year, through all the events that we've discussed over the last year, everything from the conflicts between Punk and everybody else, uh, actions, and things that, that Tony has said, the, the announcements that are disappointing, uh, his evasiveness as, as, a, as an interviewer, as, as an interview subject uh, in Q&A, um, the, set, the, the degree to which the product feels more like WWE, whether that's because you're hiring more WWE people in production, in writing, as producers, all of these things have made people lose faith and have made me lose faith that this is actually a product that can be much more popular than what it is. I feel that it's it's going to be here at this level, doing its, you know, high two O's in the demo, doing, you know, 700, 800,000, maybe sometimes 900,000 viewers for Dynamite. Uh, it's going to do its maybe 4,000 or so attendees for a TV taping. And that's sort of the level with not a wide margin where it's going to live. Do you see that as a success or failure? Literally, if they get a, a TV deal that makes this company profitable, it's profitable. If that's success, okay. But a lot of people had higher hopes for this company. That seems really unrealistic. What were the higher hopes? Did they beat WWE? That they could become even more popular than they are. That they could for for a time they did they in September right. But doesn't that seem more like doesn't that seem more like a like a, a problem with WWE like embarrassingly sinking very low, and then obviously WWE has been able to recuperate since then through a number <laughs> for a number of reasons, and have yes. kind of pushed them away. Like why would the expectation be that AEW, a startup company with no institutional um, connection with fans, really? Uh, would it be able to compete with WWE in like the key demo? They had absolutely no business doing that. They did it because, yeah, they did create kind of a hot product um, that was exciting for fans, but they also largely did it because WWE was really resistant to to 
the sentiments of their own fans and was making a lot of self-destructive choices and decisions that they've been able to largely avoid over the last year or two. Um, so I don't really see, I think like that, I think that kind of set a false parameter for what we would consider success for AEW. What if you were to say at the start of the company, uh, okay, if this company in a few years is got a stable audience of 750 to 900,000 total viewers and doing somewhere between a 0.27 and a 0.31 each week. And they've got another hour of television on Friday night and two more hours of television on Saturday night. They're running two live shows each week. Um, and they're doing six to 10 pay-per-views a year, um, at a relatively consistent pay-per-view number. Uh, I think everyone would say, wow, that's a really successful wrestling company. They've achieved, they've created another wrestling company that can be around for a long time and be accessible to people. Um, so I think the standard for AEW had kind of been raised because of how competitive they were early on, which they really should have never been expected to be. Um, but I would still view the company as a very successful entity as it stands today, even if there is some feeling of loss that they didn't fully capitalize on an opportunity that they had a few years ago, which seems to be more where you're falling, but you didn't feel like you feel like they kind of were gifted an opportunity and had some real momentum to grow further than what they have been um, that they haven't fully been able to take advantage of uh, for a lot of the reasons we've discussed. Yes. Yeah. I mean, like you want to like draw a line of success and I would not disagree with how you have defined success there and, and what they have done to meet that, that goal line. Um, yeah, it, 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 and I think it, like, it felt like there was a chance to change the wrestling culture positively. Mm -hmm. And they seem to be doing that for a while, maybe, you know, peaking in late 2021 or so. And instead of continuing along those lines more in the last 12 months or so, I think they've just sort of been consumed by the incumbent wrestling culture. You think – I think there was a real opportunity to present a less ins, uh, insulting product to fans. Um, and we've seen more of kind of those negative WWE tropes creep into AEW over the last 12 months. And I mean does it – it depends. Look at who they've hired. They hired Mike Mansuri who was uh, you know, kind of I think like a huge you know, lifelong WWE kind of guy um, to handle television production. Um, Jimmy Jacobs, who obviously spent time outside of WWE, but was a prominent creative figure in both WWE and then kind of in TNA. And he's Tony Khan's right hand man. All and Tony clearly has a lot, he clearly has a lot of influence on the shows. Um, and you can see maybe a more WWE sports entertainment, melodramatic style presentation of characters, um, since he's been aboard. So you can look at some of the people that have been brought in, uh, in, in decision roles, um, do you feel like Tony's been worn down a little bit by the constant criticism by people of Tony? He had to delegate. He has to delegate. He has to bring in other people, people that know what they're doing, people with experience from, from other places, which means people from WWE. Um, he's got to tell more stories. He's got to have characters. These kind of criticisms that I think were not always made in good faith towards AEW have unfortunately had an impact on the AEW product. If they've manifested themselves as true. Uh, I, I think, you know, there are very, very few bookers in wrestling history who put out, who, who contributed positively to, to a product um, for more than four years. Um, right. 
and I think I think that's just like a, a that's a natural function of of booking a wrestling show every week is that eventually you kind of run out of ideas and you need it needs needs to be refreshed. Um, that's not going to happen with this company. I think Tony is the impression that I get is that that Tony is very determined to get the credit to be the the great wrestling booker. So he's never going to. He's never going to move out of this spot and just like be a hands-off owner that that completely delegates creative to somebody else. Um, so, how are things really going to change? I don't know. I think it's going to kind of just stay at at this level. Um, and that's sort of the, the story with Vince, right? In 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 to to a, a very different degree with a very different environment around him, right? But it, that that's sort of the story with Vince in that he was, you know, I, I ideally the, the you know. The team should have hired a different coach uh, a, f- a few years into the 2000s to refresh things. And that's n- did not happen, was not going to happen. And, you know. One thing I'll say is, and there's been some scuttlebutt following Wednesday's dynamite and the negative reception it received online, that there's been some, some meetings have been held. Oh, my God. Um, but I will say one thing I, I still believe that Tony is serious about is that he does – he is aware of what people are saying about him, what fans think, what certain people think about who aren't affiliated with the company think about the AW product. And he is uh, sensitive to that criticism, but also willing to make changes if necessary, as opposed to WWE and Vince, who kind of had established this very um, uh, defensive cocoon around themselves, which is it doesn't matter what the fans think. It doesn't matter what the sentiment online is. We're just, you know, we're just going to continue to to do what we're doing and me and my friend Mark are, are going to not watch wrestling anymore. And those kind of things. I don't think Tony operates like that. I do think that he, as a wrestling fan himself prior to running the company understands where those fans are coming from. And it's just a matter of, I think doing some things to get the product back on track. I, I am less, I, I am, I am pretty low in terms of like disliking the AW product. I still enjoy it quite a bit. I I find a lot of the discussion around AEW uh, like losing its audience and, and its vibes. I find that like insane to a degree. I still think the product is wildly different than WWE, even if there are obviously some WWE isms sinking into the product. I, I think it still is is a, is a successful and prominent alternative to WWE product. I do not feel like I'm watching WWE when I'm watching AEW. For people that do, please go watch WWE and tell me that those products are the same. Um, but I, I, will, no- I will say, I someone talked to me the other day and vigorously defended this notion that that it's actually like WWE and pointed out things like, I mean, look at Okada. You, you have Okada, you know, uh, on Dynamite. You have Mystico on the show. You have these Zack Saber Jr. Brian Danielson matches, things like that. that yeah, someone on a Cage match, I think, or, or was it on Twitter that mentioned the the Rampage, like Triple Threat, El Hilo Del Vikingo versus yes. Commander versus. Um, uh, Penta, yeah. right? Just, so getting matches that, yeah, you can't imagine these matches happen. The matches are not the issue; they never really have been. It's it's everything around it. I did one of the criticisms that I did think is is, is a good point in terms of w, making AEW like WWE that was mentioned earlier was every match kind of has some story around it that makes the match less interesting. Um, and I do think that. That's kind of all. I always thought this has been kind of a consistent issue with AEW, and it maybe has been more magnified as the storyline directions have become maybe more sports entertainment y. But Tony, for whatever reason, has always been very resistant to here are two wrestlers having a match. 
and there's no other reason for them to have a match. It's always like there always has to be some backstage little thing, maybe a beatdown segment, maybe uh, there's an open challenge being presented, maybe there's a title eliminator match, maybe there's a number one contender match, maybe it's some in some sort of tournament to crown a number one contender. But there's very little of of, of time on AEW programming where here is just a match between two wrestlers or it's two tag teams or whatever, and they're just going to have it. And we're not going to go overboard with an explanation for it. And I would like to see more of those style of matches because I do think when you have to have angle inflation. Yeah. When you have to have an an angle and everything has to have this big consequence because that's what some people hammer home. You got to have stories. The matches have to mean something. Um, I think that is kind of a false narrative. And I think what happens is you end up getting very repetitive with a lot of your product because there's only so many ways you can set up a match uh, to to matter. Uh, Okay. Okay. This is a lot of content analysis for us, but we'll – We'll go to the business. At least the business metrics are, are doing better. No, no, they're not. Uh, Dynamite TV ratings are down in October, 18%. They've been down every quarter, every year quarter for Dynamite. Rampage is still down year over year. Um, Collision is in October still leveling to where it's going to be in the mid 400s here during football season. Um, NXT, on the other hand, is way up. Raw is down in, in October and was down for Q3. This is total viewership we're looking at here only. SmackDown is still up by single digits of percent. So WWE, on the whole, generally doing well in TV ratings. They're up. AEW, down. Uh, what about the ticketing business? And you, got, you, had, you did some research, Jesse, that we'll, we'll touch on. But let's just say what the, what the trends are for these companies in general. Uh, so far in November... Uh, with one show in November so far, Dynamite is up 8%. But in the trailing two quarters, it's been down by double digits. Uh, collision sequentially, which is all we have, is is still uh, going down to whatever its normal level is going to be. They're averaging, in, they averaged in October 3,300 tickets distributed according to WrestleTix. Um, and, and WB is up across the board. House shows, Raw, SmackDown, every quarter of this year. Um, but you looked at the question of how have these events for AEW compared when they went to a larger venue in that same market versus a smaller venue. So do you want to tell us what you learned? Yeah. So I I had this idea, which was basically, um, this really kicked in kind of right in, like I would say March of 2023, um, right when they kind of wrapped up, hitting those first time West coast markets, you know, they went to Seattle, they went to Portland. Um, they made kind of their debut there. And I kind of wanted to see once they started running some of the same markets again and for, for whatever reason, and one could say it corresponds with Jeff Jarrett kind of being brought in as, as which kind of run live events. AEW started making the attempt to run what I would consider the a arena or venue in certain markets. So in most cases here, we're talking about a NBA or NHL um, arena. And how does that compare to um, the other arenas that they were running before, which most people would call a B venue, which typically belongs to a college campus. Um, And the idea for most people, this was what people considered would be by running the A venue, you would draw more fans um, for a variety of reasons, um, better at advertising. Generally, the A venues tend to be 
located closer to public transit and in more prominent locations in downtown major cities, while the B venue might be located in a suburb or away from public transit options. Um, and, and perhaps most importantly, the A venue is what makes you look major league, right? WWE runs the A venue. So we got to run the A venue as well. And as I was doing this, I noticed that so far there actually haven't been a ton of direct market to market comparisons where AW had run the B venue before um, and had run the A venue again this year. And so far we really only have what I have right here. And, and this uh, is a mix between the columns in terms of which one is bigger and which one is smaller, right? Like all the, all the smaller venues are not on the left, for example. No, no, all the smaller venues are on the right, and all the they bigger are. venues okay, are on the left. Okay, they are separate. Yes, okay. these are ones where I, because I don't think they've run a bigger venue and then come back to the market and run a smaller venue. There is, I think, okay. one exception to that, okay. um, which is actually on here, um, which is the um, the Dynamite in Washington D.C. If you remember, they debuted at the Capital One Arena, which they sold out for the debut of Dynamite. Um, but when they came back to the Washington Mark, uh, DC market, they ran the entertainment and sports arena, which is the basketball court for American university in Washington, DC. So they kind of downgraded to the B venue, which made sense because they weren't going to draw what they did on the debut of dynamite. Um, but what I looked at was this year markets that they've been back to when they decided we're going to run the A venue instead of the B venue and kind of what the results were. Um, and you can see here, like. The first one is in Baltimore, right? They ran the CFG Bank Arena, which is the biggest arena in Baltimore. I don't – it is not a NHL or NBA um, arena, but it is about the same size as those those buildings, like a 15,000, 16,000-seat venue. Um, they ran that instead of the much smaller Chesapeake Employers Insurance Arena, which is where the University of Baltimore, Maryland – the University of Maryland, Baltimore County uh, – uh, plays their basketball games and you can see a really big increase they only drew 2700 when they were in the b venue and they went to the a venue they drew almost 4700 so up 72 percent. so that's the kind of jump you want to see right um you want to see a big jump by running that a venue and obviously the a venue costs more money probably to run than the b venue so you're going to need to draw more and you're probably run charging higher ticket prices too Washington, D.C., a similar story. They had run the smaller entertainment and sports arena back in October of 22. They did 3,100 fans. They came back in June of 2023. They ran the Capital One Arena, which is where the Washington Wizards and Washington Capitals play. And again, up 71%, almost an identical increase on percentage-wise from where they ran in Baltimore. Um, the next show is in Boston. We talked about this one before. They ran the Aganis Arena. 3,600 fans back in November. That's on Boston University campus. Well, that's because you were the local promoter there, right? Yeah, I was channeling my inner Paul Bowser and uh, in, in, in promoting the, the area. <laughs> um, now, now this was Blood and Guts. And then they ran Blood and Guts. Huge, huge success, right? Um, they run the TD Garden, which is where the Bruins and the Celtics play. They would do almost 9,000 fans, up 148%. So at that point, July of 2023, we're looking at some really positive, um, some really positive trends in terms of running the A arena. Certainly that Boston one is tremendous when you look at the growth in that market. Um, but if we get, we have two more that came in August that are less successful. Um, on August 9th, they ran the Schottenstein Center, 
um, in Columbus, which is uh, Ohio, it's on the campus of Ohio State. Um, they did 5,400 fans there for last August. They come back. They say, we're going to run the A venue. We're going to run the nationwide arena, an 18,000-seat venue in Columbus, which is where the Columbus Blue Jackets, the NHL play. They only do 4,200 fans. So they do um, about 1,200 fans less than they did running the B venue. So that's down 22%, which I would consider a disaster. If you're just looking for market to market, you pay are presumably paying more to run the A venue and you do 1,200 fans worse. And then another example would be in Nashville. Um, last year on February 16th, they ran the Nashville Municipal Auditorium, which is an older venue in Nashville. Um, the B venue, 4,800 fans there. They come back in August of 2016. They run the Bridgestone Arena, another NHL arena for the Nashville Predators. They do 4,700 fans, down 4%, about flat from, from where they were previously. So I think it's something to be mindful of in terms of what, what I see here is kind of maybe reflective of the, it's just reflective of their attendance trends in general. Um, earlier this year, they were maybe up in attendance a little bit. Um, and then as we got later into the year, especially towards the second half of the year, we're down. And I don't know, in, in all of these cases, ex- with the exception of the Boston show, the crowd that you attracted in the A venue would have fit in the B venue building. Mm-hmm. This is Quinton's so, would have it. We just got data from Polestar this morning for this Nashville mm-hmm. show. The paid, according to Polestar, was 4,821. So slightly above what WrestleTix had it estimated at. Not, I would mm-hmm. say not meaningfully different, but slightly higher. Uh, gate, $199,000. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't know how much it costs to rent the Bridgestone Arena. I mean, um, to, to put on the show, I'm sure it was a lot more than $199,000. Well, yeah. costs all, all, all in. Right. Um, but I'm just I'm curious to know, like, and what really made me think about this was going back to the dynamite from this week when everyone was telling me how bad the show was. And when I turned on the show, a, a comment I heard a lot was that the show felt soulless, that the show kind of felt like low energy. Um, it didn't seem like the crowd was really making that much noise. I thought the crowd was into the matches, but a major problem was that they had 4,100 people there, which I would consider to be about an average AEW attendance figure at this point. But they were in a 22,000-seat venue. They're in one of the largest venues they've ever run, uh, the KFC Yum Center in, in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, so you take those 4,100 fans and you put them in a gigantic venue. It isn't going to make the same amount of noise. You take that same 4,100 fans and put them in like a 5,000-seat venue, you get a completely different atmosphere for the show. And I think that impacts the way people view the product when they have a, a hotter audience that is making a lot more noise. And they've been to Kentucky a lot of times this year, haven't they? Uh, they I know they, they ran Rupp Arena, which again is also a very similar sized building. Like Rupp Arena and the KFC Yum Center in Lexington. Like in the Louis- area? Well, the Rupp Arena is in Lexington, Kentucky. It's the University of Kentucky's arena. Um, and the KFC Yum Center is in Louisville, which is Louis University of Louisville's arena. And they are both amongst the largest. I believe Rupp Arena is the largest primary basketball venue, I think, in the world. Um, in terms of how many, in terms of a t- like a seatage, I think they have like twenty four hundred seats there. Um, 
and the KFC Yum Center is not that far behind. So we're talking about buildings that are are slightly larger than than your typical NBA NHL arena. Um, so I think and when you when you just have a smaller audience, you're not going to get the same kind of um, you know tight ambiance that you're going to have if you're close to filling up the venue. So there we go. Four thousand one hundred twelve is the number from Russell Ticks for this past Wednesday. Believable. Mm-hmm. They should, if the crowd is dead, though, they should just pipe in crowd noise. Well, that's the lesson. <laughs> that, that's a lesson. I mean, and I definitely think that on Rampage, the uh, the noise is perhaps edited a little bit. It's not nearly as egregious as like when WWE is pumping in booze during a promos and things like that. But I do think that the the audio is enhanced. Uh, I do have another non, finally a non W non AEW slide here. New Japan's attendance, according to their official website, the attendance that they publish themselves on their official website, they're up uh, in this entire year, uh, every quarter, and so far in November, at least as of the other day, they're up by most uh, three out of five. It's double digits. Um, so New Japan doing better than last year. This may not be saying a lot because attendances weren't great last year, but to, to date they're averaging one thousand nine hundred. In 2023 versus 1,500 in 2022. That's well off of 2019, the last full year before the pandemic, where they averaged 2,700, again, averaging 1,900 in this year. So that's where New Japan is doing better than they were doing last year, but not nearly as well as they were doing pre-pandemic. Um, I put Impact and New Japan in here. I don't know if we need to discuss that. Um, okay. And then Merchandise. This was this this was my so I announced I was going to have a uh, I announced that I was going to have an unimportant announcement and I was yeah I, I didn't really know what the announcement was going to be before I announced it I just needed some hype to pop a rating here so uh, so I figured we would hard launch the free trial thing as hard as I'm going to launch it but also I think I think from now on these merchandise reports that I put out every month um, I think I might do them in audio only because I don't like how they get aggregated um, people don't use the word estimate to to put them out there because it's much more i think favorable for for engagement if they don't put the word estimate in there and um i don't really like the um the blue check um engagement aggregators on twitter uh that you know it uh the priority is not information but is engagement and this is a great piece of uh of bait to use as engagement because it involves talent and, and it compares talent against each other um in any case here's the data WWE Shop uh, in this month, LA Night was number one again, which is a number of months in a row. Uh, number one on on Shop AEW was MGF, Madam Cole. More meaningfully, um, and Sean Ross App has been reporting um, merchandise activity. I believe primarily at the venue where Cody Rhodes has been doing especially well. Uh, I've got him at number three here. But let's more meaningfully let's look at a, a larger piece of time year to date, January first of this year to November fourth of this year. So almost the entire year. The so year is almost over, and I do have Cody Rhodes as number one when you look at that time time span. Um, number two, Stone Cold Steve Austin. It's number two in 2023, followed by Roman Reigns, John Cena, LA Knight, NWO, WWE brand. This is apparel only, by the way. I imagine if you included things like replica belts in here, that WWE would be much higher. Um, Eddie Guerrero, Rhea Ripley, and the Usos. That rounds out the, the 10, uh, the top 10. And then for AEW, 
So this is not including PWT stuff, but just AEW. PWTs and AEW are pretty similar at this point. But anyway, number one is AEW branded stuff in general, followed by somebody called CM Punk, followed by the acclaimed Orange Cassidy, the Elite, Kenny Omega, which is separate from the Elite, uh, MJF and Adam Cole, which is separate from MJF or Adam Cole individually. And then we have FTR, we have MJF, we have Dan Housen at number 10. So I think this reflects what you would guess are the top merchandise sellers. What is this yeah. actually? This is my daily automated collection of the top sellers pages. Assuming those are honest relative to who's actually relative to the items that are actually being sold the best. And we do see some, some acts here that probably over index for merchandise for whatever reason, doesn't necessarily mean that they're, they're the biggest stars. Like this would tell you that the acclaimed are currently the biggest stars in AEW that are currently on the roster, which I don't think is true, but they over-index very well um, with merchandise uh, as someone like Dan Housen and Orange Cassidy. Um, this would tell you a- that Roman Reigns is one of the biggest stars in WWE, which we know cannot be the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, Roman Reigns is, is, is not, not that good. He's not getting in the Hall of Fame this year, let me tell you. you um, so. Are you know, voting for him? No. All right, my ballot is public now, Brandon. My is ballot. Okay. Is, yep, I, I tweeted it out. I've let Detliff, who runs the Wrestling Observer oh. Newsletter Hall of Fame, yes. ballot tracker, to, to aggregate it appropriately. Yes. My ballot is it's closed. No longer uh, change my mind. Um, uh, if you sent it in, I, I I will send it in before. I have submitted it to Dave. So I'm going to uh, go vote um, probably on Tuesday. And, and I, have you noticed like it's on – the, the, like a couple of years in a row now. I don't know oh, is it? It's on election day. It's on election day. I didn't realize day. that. Yeah. <laughs> For it's the same week as election day. So I can get my I voted sticker and say I voted <laughs> in the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame. Uh, You're not going to participate in uh, Buffalo City elections? I am going to vote. Yeah, I'll, I'll okay. go vote. We, we have right. a Erie County executive uh, election. Uh, so that's that's that. Uh, I think that's yeah. all I have. Yes. Oh, I just I was going to point out. Um, I was talking about this with some other people in, uh, earlier this week. Do you in your life, Brandon, do you notice people, um, but particularly like teenagers, wearing like 90s, like pop culture clothing? I don't, I don't know if I encounter teenagers. Yeah, you might. You live in a. Where a, would a, I encounter teenagers? I don't know. It sounds like you live in a hoity toity. Um, Excuse me. Uh, place that it seems bar- barring teenagers. Um, anyway, I, this happened to me a few weeks ago. I was in a. Uh, I was at a place that had a lot of teenagers walking around in it. And I noticed that a lot of them were wearing like 90s pop culture clothing. Uh, I saw someone was wearing a uh, a Selena shirt. I saw someone wearing a Tupac Shakur shirt. I saw someone wearing a Mike Tyson shirt. These are clearly designed to be like 90s clothing, not like clothing made today. DX shirts. Didn't see any DX shirts. But in a similar phenomenon happened about 10 years ago with 80s clothing, right? Younger people, like people in my generation, were wearing 80s stuff, um, even if they maybe didn't have any knowledge or, or particular affinity or nostalgia for that 80s stuff. Um, and so what that meant – and so I was wondering if that is – that's a trend now, like wearing 90s retro garb is, is a trend and so things like Stone Cold Steve Austin and the NWO – are popular now um, because they are ninety. They're they're part of this greater '90s pop culture kind of retro boom that we have now. Um, I will also add that both 
the tip of the, the, the traditional Austin 316 shirt and the traditional NWO shirts are shirts that you could probably wear in public uh, and not be embarrassed for wearing in terms of just from a, a style perspective. You, you would be embarrassed to wear a yeah shirt? If the shirt that just says yeah isn't as bad, but like for me, like one with just the giant graphic that's just like a big giant thing of LA night and it just says, yeah, that would be a, a, something that would just, I don't want to wear a shirt that just screams, I watch wrestling. I want something that's a little bit more subtle. Like, yeah, like his, the yellow one is fine. Even the LA night that's just like the letters is fine. But like, they're, the they're running a deal you. on title belts. They're running a deal on yeah. replica belts if you want one. Let me talk to you. Uh, yeah. Belts um, is, is not something that I would do. By the way, if you, uh, if you want a title belt, like the NFL title belts, um, where are where are those? I'll search for those quickly. You, you know they have the the new the, the W title belts uh, for for every NFL team. I think for every NFL team, I remember some of them sold out quickly, but they you know they restocked them. Um, so let's see how many how many teams are so there's one of thirty one. So they have a, a belt for every team, right? Because there's thirty one teams in the NFL. Is that right? Uh no, there's thirty two teams in the NFL. Right? I, I check this regularly. I thought there were only thirty one teams in the NFL. Nope, there's thirty because it always says it always says thirty one. No, I'm, I hate to break it to you, Brandon, but there is one team that is not featured with the uh, you cannot get a licensed WWE Championship belt uh, with their logo on it. Who's missing? Um, I believe it is the uh, it's 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 sadly, and I know because it's the Jacksonville Jaguars. Oh, the Jacksonville. Why do they not have the Jacksonville Jaguars? Because the Jacksonville Jaguars are owned by Tony Khan, who owns. Rival all elite wrestling, but but this is the WWE shop. W doesn't care about AEW. I think WWE would like to be able to sell a Jacksonville Jaguars belt. If if uh, if you were to me, I think I think that's a, a, a another problem. WWE doesn't care about that wrestling stuff. They don't care about what, what what's going on in the wrestling world. They're beyond that. They're they got blinders them. on. They got they got blinders on. Yes, yes. Okay, that's all for this week. You have anything to plug? Oh, nope, just a gentleman's wrestling podcast. Uh, I think I did this last week, but me and Adam Berger had about a three hour and five minute discussion about the ballot. If anyone wants more Hall of Fame content, there's so much of it out right now, which pleases me greatly because I think the more content, the more interest we have for the Hall of Fame, the better. Um, and what we really need to do is shame people into doing more research before they vote. That should be the goal of this. Yes, especially the wrestlers, the active wrestlers. They should do their research. Um if you want to listen to this program next week, it's part of the Patreon, patreon.com slash WrestleNomics, WrestleNomics.com slash subscribe. We'll get you there as well. Uh, WrestleNomics Radio is every week for subscribers, both video and audio. Otherwise, you can't you can't listen to it. You can't watch it or anything unless you're a subscriber. Uh, you also get the TV ratings reports, the viewership spreadsheet, other news updates, the monthly reports, some of which are already out, and the podcast slides, all the slides that we went through today. You get the Google Slides version, the PDF version. There'll be quarter hour reports and things of that nature. So thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll talk to you on Wednesday. Free for everybody. Paul and Thurston, TKO Earnings Report Analysis. Bye. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.